Today is May 19th, 2020. I'm Zachary Elwood, and this is the People Who Read People podcast, where I interview people from different fields about their work in understanding human behavior. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Rob Tarswell. Dr. Tarswell is dual certified in psychiatry and nuclear medicine. He's the chief medical officer of Initio Medical Imaging, a PET CT clinic, and he consults on complex cases where traumatic brain injury and psychiatric syndromes may both be present. His scientific research has included the use of psychotherapy for medically unexplained symptoms, measurable brain changes associated with psychodynamic psychotherapies, and the use of functional brain imaging in psychiatric disorders. He's a clinical assistant professor on the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Welcome to the program, Dr. Tarswell. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very, very honored to have you on. Uh, I'm going to talk about some interesting brain imaging uh, stuff today and your and your work. Uh, so first, we'll talk about your traumatic brain injury work. And I should start that out with saying in, uh, in 2015, Discover Magazine selected your research as one of the top 100 uh, science stories for 2015. Yeah, that was nice. We were sandwiched right in between the Tesla Powerwall and uh, Pluto, either getting uh, demoted or re-promoted uh, in planetary status. It's always moving yeah, up you, and down. You were pretty high up there. You were like on, was it like number 19 or something like that, right? Uh, 15, I think. 15, but okay. I, I'd Some, actually have yeah. to, It's it's been five years now, so I'd have to go digging back to see for sure where we landed on the list. We were pretty so, pleased. So let's so let's talk about that. Like, what 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 was the uh, the goal there, and what was the problem you were trying to to solve with that? Um, right. That so the the core question was, how can you differentiate post traumatic stress disorder from traumatic brain injury? And post traumatic stress disorder is a trauma related disorder. So somebody experiences a traumatic event that's often either involving um, serious injury or the, the risk or threat of serious injury or death um, or some kind of severe invalidation like uh, a rape and traumatic brain injury, which is a little more self-explanatory. That's either a direct impact on the head or an indirect impact such as a concussive wave from an explosion or a significant flexion extension injury of the neck. And there can be a lot of symptom overlap between these two. So individuals with both disorders will report trouble sleeping. They'll report difficulty with memory. They'll report irritability and explosive temper. They'll report uh, poor impulse control. So as physicians, we want to understand, all right, is this one or is it the other? Or is it maybe a mix of both? Because uh, the treatments are different. Uh, some of the treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder, such as sedative medication like benzodiazepines, would be relatively contraindicated in traumatic brain injury because they can lead to paradoxical amplification of um, aggressive impulses and acting out. So it's worthwhile to try and understand the difference. And we wondered whether functional brain imaging might help uh, tip the scale and improve the diagnostic precision of just standard paper and pencil tests and diagnostic interviews. And this so, is uh, this would be especially um, 
meaningful to find out for patients or people who have had both traumatic physical experiences and traumatic emotional experiences, right? That was that was one of the areas of confusion. Like so, for uh, yes. soldiers, for example, uh, that so that's one of the the use cases right. for that. Yeah. So I mean, so a paradigm case would be you aren't the person who's standing right beside the improvised explosive device. You're the person who's maybe 90 meters away and you see members of your platoon cut into shreds, but you also get knocked back 10 or 20 meters and have an intense headache for the next three days. So uh, very worthwhile to know whether you've had psychological traumatization from that and uh, physical traumatization through that concussive force. Right. So, so is work- it, was this also, can I, can I ask first, is, yeah. is that also, is also the reason to choose something like that is that you're choosing something that's very physical versus something that's, you know, very emotional. So it's, it's the, was that also a factor in, in doing that research to be able to make a, have such a clear delineation? Is that, is that accurate? Well, it turns out that we, we did end up having a, a fairly clear delineation and part of the reason for that uh, could be that in traumatic brain injury, generally, um, neurons that have been physically traumatized tend to, because of internal derangements within the neurons, aren't able to metabolize efficiently or at a normal rate. And so uh, the brain, uh, just, just to kind of link this with our imaging method, brain cells that are working hard are burning up sugar and burning up sugar creates carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide causes blood vessels to dilate, which brings in more blood. And our imaging method measures blood flow. So it doesn't measure brain metabolism directly. There are other methods that do directly measure metabolism. So we're indirectly measuring metabolism through demand. Um, neurons that are burning high are recruiting a lot of blood neurons that uh, that are just kind of humming along normally would have sort of within a normal range and then neurons that are struggling or under metabolizing for whatever reason are going to recruit less blood flow and we can take that spectrum of blood flow and create 3d maps essentially of brain perfusion and our interest was in, um, because traumatic brain injury, there's, there's a derangement of function. So there's decreased metabolism versus post-traumatic stress disorder, which tends to be uh, a hyperactivation of portions of the brain involved in emotional circuitry or production of emotions, in particular anxiety, which is sort of the core emotion of post-traumatic stress disorder. And so there's hyperactivation in what we call the limbic circuit. So structures deep in the center of the brain, the thalamus, the basal ganglia, the thalamus is the big switching station that sits on top of the brainstem and it communicates between the rest of the body via the spinal cord and the cerebral cortex, which is the, the, the part of your brain that thinks, which sits on the outside of your brain, the vast majority of your brain, like 90 plus percent is white matter. And that's basically just all the cables connecting the server boxes. So most of your brain is cables um, and the servers are just way out on the outside. So the nice thing is traumatic brain injury tends to cause decreases in activity in the cortex, 
which is on the outside, whereas post-traumatic stress disorder causes increased metabolism in functions, or pardon me, in structures near the center of your brain. So we thought... So was that, was that known going in uh, before the research, or was, or was that... Uh... Well, there, we well certainly known? based on our uh, review article that we published in 2014, based on a two-year review, we were pretty satisfied that with our imaging method, brain perfusion spec, decreased activity either focally or globally, depending on the severity of the traumatic brain injury, is the neurobiological finding or the imaging finding. And there was also, to, to a lesser extent, evidence supporting increased activation, therefore uh, hypermetabolism, hyperperfusion in anxiety states in, in limbic structures near the center of the brain. So we had uh, what we thought would be nice, easily separable neurobiological phenomenon to interrogate um, a clinical phenomenon, which is much harder to tease apart. So this seemed to be, if there's, if there's a low-hanging fruit of neurobiology in a clinical setting, this is it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and you pulled those, your work involved reviewing uh, images from an existing library uh, database of, of many images over the, over the years? Is that right? That's right. So the, the images we use came from the Amon database, and that's a database of approximately, I think now, about 130,000 brain perfusion spec scans performed by the same technologists using the same technique on the same cameras over um, a number of years. These, these scans in this database go back to the early 90s. So it's uh, almost a 30-year-old database of scans. But because the cameras are the same and the software is the same, a scan performed in 1995 is going to be comparable in quality and data validity to a scan performed in 2015. And scans are performed in two conditions. One, the individual is at rest. And the other one, the individual is engaged in a concentration task, which is the Connors continuous performance task used to diagnose ADHD. And it's a uh, laptop-based task. You're basically watching a screen and hitting the space bar whenever you see certain conditions. So we had about 20,000 individuals that we had. So some of these were individuals with pure post-traumatic stress disorder, some pure traumatic brain injury, some post-traumatic stress disorder plus traumatic brain injury together, and then all three of those plus extra conditions. So maybe alcohol use disorder, um, mood disorders, other substance use disorders. And And then I assume a control... There would, there would yes. be a control group of just healthy people too, I guess. Yeah, the Amon database also has a uh, about 100 brains, uh, or 100 scans, I should say, um, from uh, across the age span at concentration and at rest in individuals with no history of substance use disorder, no history of psychiatric disorders, no history of brain infections, and no history of head injuries. So the, you could say sort of the unicorns of life who uh, volunteered to allow study uh, of their brains in, in, uh, in this normal state. And our I guess data, for, your, uh, yeah. for your purposes, though, you're just, you were mainly focused on differentiating the, 
the the two brains or the the two the two conditions, not necessarily uh, the healthy uh, scans. Right. Is but that right? Yeah. The the process was all right. Can we distinguish traumatic brain injury from a normal brain? Can we distinguish mm. post traumatic stress disorder in our data set from normal? Can we distinguish uh, PTSD plus TBI from normal? Uh, can we distinguish PTSD from TBI? Can we distinguish PTSD or TBI from the combination of PTSD and TBI? And the answer to all those questions was yes. Uh, in particular, we had very high accuracy distinguishing PTSD, TBI, or the combination from the normal data set. Accuracy basically of 100%. Uh, which you should always be suspicious of. Anytime you find accuracy of 100%, you think, okay, what what have we done wrong? Because this isn't how too the easy. world works. Too easy. Yeah. Too easy. Yeah. yeah, wrap it up. Right. We're done here. Uh, we're, we're heading to Stockholm. Um, but uh, what we did was then, well, okay, so so that's fine. How about if we take, can we distinguish PTSD not only from normal, but from... TBI brains. Yes. How about brains from with PTSD and TBI? Yes. Okay. How about from brains with PTSD, TBI, alcohol use disorder, and major depression? Uh, yes, 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 yes. But um, importantly, as we stress tested the data by taking our pure samples versus samples with more and more burden of illness, the accuracy went down, which is exactly what you would expect because this is going to be more difficult for a human reader to distinguish. It was also more difficult for our statistical method to distinguish because say traumatic brain injury, which has decreased brain activity, um, a lot of substance use disorders also have decreased brain activity. So if someone has post-traumatic stress disorder and alcohol use disorder, one's dialing up the brain, the other one's dialing down the brain. So um, we would expect there to be difficulties in distinguishing that from, a, say, a pure PTSD. And sure enough, we did find those difficulties. But even under maximum sort of stress test conditions, the accuracy of our testing, by which I mean the ability to distinguish true positives and true negatives from the entire data set, remained about 65%. So clinically relevant accuracy, even under pretty significant uh, stress test kind of conditions. What are the practical benefits of this? Like, uh, mm -hmm. would this mean somebody would be able to go in and know objectively uh, at, a, at a pretty high reliability level what they were suffering from? So the clinical benefit is if we kind of circle back to that, that difficulty because of this, the high symptom overlap, there could be individuals out there who have traumatic brain injury um, in addition to PTSD. And they're not responding to standard PTSD treatments. Maybe they're not doing well with psychotherapy. Maybe they're not doing well with medications. And maybe there's some lack of clarity around the diagnosis. So in this case, uh, this test could indicate to a treating physician, well, look, you know, there's a comorbid traumatic brain injury here. Maybe we need to not be pushing so hard for substantial remission or a cure. Maybe we're looking at a completely different prognostic trajectory, and maybe we need to help this individual um, get onto some disability program and look at longer-term rehabilitation 
instead of just operating under the assumption that, gee, you should be better by now. You're getting the best treatments, right? So it can be really validating for patients. It can be right, a source right. of relief for patients and families, for care providers. Um, because people, by and large, they want to know what happened to them, what's going on right. inside my brain. And um, just simply having an accurate diagnosis itself can be really therapeutic, especially if there's been a lot of frustration therapeutically. Uh, it also can end up be becoming important medical legally, say, uh, before the courts when uh, um, right. trying to determine the true extent of, of, of injuries and therefore trying to determine long-term prognosis. In particular, the court is interested in, all right, what's the functional impact of this down the road? And how do we offset that loss of function with appropriate funding to make sure that this person's care needs are taken care of and that there's appropriate compensation for lost income. I might be missing something obvious, but uh, it seems like this is, I'm just surprised no one had done that work before because it seems like an, were they doing scans, uh, imaging of brains to determine uh, injury before, but just no one had, had compared it with, with other types of, of, of scans? Is that, is it just that, that simple? Um, because it well, seems it like it kind of it gets seems into, like they would have been, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It gets into sort of the strange history of functional brain imaging. And in the early seventies, uh, the number one brain imaging modality in the world was brain perfusion spec. And you're like, what, what are you talking about? I've never heard about this before two weeks ago. And what ended up happening at that time was the brain perfusion tracers that were approved were approved for acute stroke. This is in an era when CT scanning didn't exist yet. And the, the only way to detect stroke was clinically. Somebody comes in and their face is asymmetrical, their speech is slurred, their arm is weak. Um, okay, that's a stroke. Um, mm. One question that's of interest medically, though, is, all right, is this an ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke? Because if it's a stroke from a bleed, we need to wake up a neurosurgeon and drain out that blood. Um, whereas if it's an ischemic stroke, you know, from the 1970s perspective, well, that's too bad, but, you know, we don't have to wake up a neurosurgeon. And so the first imaging method that was able to spot stroke and, and maybe indicate some of these differences were these brain perfusion tracers. So there'd just basically be this big dark spot where the tracer couldn't go because it would either be blocked by the blocked blood vessel or blocked by all the pressure generated from the internal bleed that was squeezing blood vessels and not allowing blood to be delivered to a particular area in the brain. By the early 80s, CT scanning came along and quite rapidly and appropriately displaced SPECT because now CT scans can give us information about, all right, the skull, the scalp, the brain tissue itself. And their CTs are, are brilliant at dif differentiating the type of stroke. And then by the mid to late 90s, now we're looking at uh, treatments for acute stroke. So we're going to use clot busters in ischemic stroke. We're going to use neurosurgery and hemorrhagic stroke. And at the same time, PET as an imaging modality was arising, particularly in United States academic medical centers. And PET at that time had superior spatial resolution to SPECT. 
And uh, all crucially in the mid nineties, uh, CMS under Medicare approved a fee code for the use of PET in the workup of cancer because PET uses a molecule called FDG, which is radioactive sugar, basically that directly measures metabolism. And a lot of cancers are very hypermetabolic. They're very hungry for sugar. They take up FDG and glow like Christmas lights on these scans. And physicians and scientists realize, oh, wow, this is really important information to help us properly stage cancer for who needs surgery versus those in whom it's too late. And PET was the first imaging modality that allowed this kind of major shift in um, cancer staging and therefore cancer treatment. So a fee code came for PET and all the dust covers got thrown on all the spec machines uh, used for brain and all of um, academic attention got shifted to the use of PET for uh, brain imaging in addition to cancer imaging. It became sort of the bell of the ball. And that's sort of the uh. mid-90s picture. Fast forward another 10 years, and the new kid on the block is fMRI. And right. um, nowadays, the vast majority, uh, I would say, I would have to say more than 90% of functional brain imaging research is functional MRI. And that uh. is perfectly fine. That's perfectly appropriate. fMRI uh, doesn't involve ionizing radiation. You can do it as many times as you want. Um, but uh, each one of these methods has its problems. So SPECT um, doesn't have the greatest spatial resolution. So a voxel or a volume element in a SPECT image is about seven, about seven millimeters. So we're looking at little cubes of brain that are about seven by seven by seven millimeters. All right, not so great. We get down to PET, and now we're looking at about a four millimeter by four by four voxel. And then uh, we compare that with, with fMRI. Well, structural MRI is about a one millimeter voxel. The functional part of MRI is, is actually pretty comparable to, to PET, about a four millimeter voxel superimposed on a one millimeter uh, voxel. And we should say voxels are just a word for the the lowest resolution you can get for that's right. Whatever. Yeah, volume element is is, is basically element. it's a three D yeah. pixel. Um, the the trade offs are that whereas SPECT has a, a a really high signal to noise ratio, fMRI has a very low signal to noise ratio, um, and in a lot of uh, university centers, there there's still movement toward broad standardization of fMRI methods um, and software, whereas SPECT, um, because it was driven clinically, has had standardization of methods and techniques for almost 40 years. So uh. there are just simply trade-offs either way. And there are a lot of individuals who can't tolerate being in an MRI scanner, particularly individuals who are prone to anxiety. It's, uh, it's, it can be a claustrophobic experience, particularly if you're wearing that coil on your head and having to hold still. And that thing is pounding like a German disco. Um, and you have to be in there for a while. Is that true? That's getting better. I think fMRI uh, in terms of its speed is getting faster and faster. Um, but you're in there, you're close. It can be up to 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Um, inspect, 
we can kind of get the scan done in about 15 minutes. We don't have to do the scan right away. You know, once when I inject that tracer into you, mm. within about two to five minutes, it is distributed into your neurons and it stays locked in that distribution because your blood carries the tracer to the neuron. It passes freely into the neuron through the cell membrane, and then it gets chemically ionized in the neuron and therefore is trapped in the cytosol, which is the sort of the, the goopy jelly fluid component of the cell. And so it doesn't diffuse back across the membrane. So it's like a Polaroid and that Polaroid persists for up to six hours. So what we can do in individuals with a SPECT scan is, all right, we, we're going to inject you. And once that tracer has equilibrated or reached equilibrium, all right, now we can give you a sedative if you have claustrophobia. Uh, we can, and we can wait for that sedative to, to work. Um, and then we can take the images. There's just no rush. Whereas if I was to give you um, a sedative for an, MRI, for an fMRI scan, it's going to directly affect the activation patterns mm. in your brain right. precisely when I'm trying to uh, interrogate certain kinds of activation patterns. But um, again, because the, F- the fMRI is, it doesn't involve any uh, in- ingestion of stuff. It's just measuring uh, blood flow. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. So it's, it's looking at the ratio between oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin, because those have slightly different interactions in a magnetic field. Okay. Uh, when, I had a question about this. So for the SPECT, it, I wasn't, it wasn't clear if it was just, you had said pictures. So it's taking multiple pictures. I was wondering why it required multiple pictures and not just one. Well, it's, uh, think of it, there's a, um, say there's a source of radioactivity inside your brain. And if I have a single plate, I'm going to capture an image of, of that radioactivity and I'll know where it is um, in two dimensional space on that plate. Right. Mm-hmm. But if I want to make a 3d image of where that radioactivity is, I got to kind of move that plate. And so it rotates around your brain and then we capture more radioactivity. And now we have um, because of where the activity is on the plates, we can just draw lines, straight lines back to the brain and where they cross that's where the activity came from. So that's the, so basically you're triangulating and that's what the tomography part of the, that's the tomography the word part, is. right. It's basically right. putting it together, taking the two dimensional pictures and making a three dimensional object out of it. Exactly. Is that, yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, so for the fMRI, I, I'm not clear there either. What, what does it take? What does that one take so long? Because that one seems like it's more clearly like you can get a, um, it seems like you can get a 3D image easier. So I wasn't sure how that exactly worked. And maybe we're getting too far off, but I was really interested in in how that fMRI worked. Yeah, great questions. They just happen to be sort of outside my arena. (laughs) So I don't know, I don't know MRI physics, so I'm not going to. We we were getting too far off the, we were getting too far away from our subject matter. Anyway, let's get, let's get back to, uh, you know, when, when you talked about being able to recognize all of those, those indicators successfully, was that surprising to you? And, uh, or, or did you expect based on your understanding to, to see that? We expected that. So it was gratifying that that hypothesis worked out. Um, I think 
a lot of science is really it's just kind of progressive heartbreak <laughs> when uh, when study after study just doesn't work out, doesn't go your way. Uh, in this case, it was really nice to get a nice brisk result. And I think that was a product of choosing something carefully um, in an area that where where separately these areas had been highly investigated um, and it was the right confluence. Somebody, you know, wow, this, this chocolate is really good. And then over here in the literature, it's like, wow, this peanut butter is really good. And then it's like, well, well what right. happens if we combine chocolate and peanut butter? Can we right. get that the gets Reese's- me back. That gets me back to the question I wanted to ask was you chose SPECT because you had such a database. Is that, is that correct? Like I was going to ask why you didn't choose fMRI. Right. Well, um, it's sort of like, uh, kind of looking where you are in a sense. My background's nuclear medicine. Uh, I was working with nuclear medicine colleagues who, and psychiatric colleagues who are just, just happen to be interested in this particular modality, uh, in psychiatric disorders. And therefore we, just thought, okay, well, what, what do we got? What do we got here? And we happen to have that database. Um, and so uh, the study more or less came together over about an 18, uh, month period. Our, our study leader was a, you know, a really, really dynamic, uh, neuroradiological investigator, uh, Dr. Cyrus Raji, who's now a neuroradiologist in, um, St. Louis, St. Louis. I don't know how you pronounce St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis. <laughs> At, yeah. At, uh, so. at yeah, at, at, at Washington University anyway. And, uh-huh. But at the time, he was a, um, a radiology resident at UCLA who had a background, uh, a PhD in neuroscience, looking specifically at um, manipulation of large neuroimaging data sets. So uh, we just happened to find the right guy who, who got interested in these questions, and we were off. Mm-hmm. So does that mean if, if you were able to recognize indicators of PTSD, does that mean, uh, would that be very similar to indicators of depression or other you know, psychological, emotional problems uh, or those? Right. Those so, distinct? I mean, yeah. So, I mean, the, the nice thing about say this study is the typically, um, you know, individuals know if they're in some kind of psychiatric distress and they either, I mean, they may have varying degrees of insight into that. They may, you know, resist wanting to kind of look at those aspects of their lives. Um, But generally speaking, these are individuals who were seeking help for psychiatric difficulties. This is how they ended up coming to clinical attention in the first place. Um, So essentially, you could use SPECT uh, to interrogate other psychiatric disorders and that's uh, an area of research that I've kind of progressed to now. This is a question of interest to me. You know, what what can SPECT tell us about the search for biomarkers in mood disorders, for instance? And I'm working with a young um, psychiatry resident, Dr. Joel Fox, and uh, using deep learning networks to take, again, a big chunk of data from the, uh, the Amon database this time around 11,000 cases and use, um, different kinds of machine learning, deep learning algorithms to interrogate. And those studies are, are ongoing and we're, we're looking forward to what, what kind of mm. gets spit out of the machine. Um, 
but potentially, yeah, you could you could use SPECT and this database if you wanted. You could investigate psychotic disorders, mood disorders, substance use mm. disorders. Uh, there's nothing that would particularly prevent that. Um, my, my hunch is that as we move further and further away from the low-hanging fruit, it's going to be more and more difficult to make the distinctions. Um, and because of, we might run up against the limitations of SPECT because of its... Uh, it's relatively low spatial resolution and, and the limitations of brain perfusion, which is kind of a non-specific approach, right? So in PET, we can basically make just about any small molecule. I mean, we can't, we're not just limited to making FDG. So we can make dopamine with a SPECT scanner or sorry, for a PET scanner, we can make uh, serotonin, we can make analogs of these compounds uh, and we can get into looking at very precise uh, metabolic targets. So we can look at specific proteins. So uh, you maybe have heard of amyloid, which is the the main protein abnormality in Alzheimer's disease or or tau, which is the main protein abnormality in chronic traumatic encephalopathy. PET allows us to do those things. SPECT is more limited simply because of the kinds of molecules that we have to work with as our radioactive emitters inspect uh, are much more limited than what we can work with in PET. We can use fundamental building blocks of biomolecules. So in PET, you can use carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, or fluorine to make um, small molecules. Whereas in SPECT, you're more or less limited to using an atom called technetium, which is a breakdown product of molybdenum and now you're stuck with the chemical constraints of having to use a fairly large metallic ion and having to link it to a molecule that targets a process of interest. That might be getting that might be getting a little technical. It's suddenly occurring oh, to me. <laughs> so uh, you might have already you might have explained this, and I just missed it. But why wouldn't why can't you use fMRI for this for the work you're doing? I think potentially you could. Um, again, I'm just not familiar enough with the fMRI literature. And so this study, it might be out there. It might have been published. This is the, this is the terrible world of science. Even even people who are literally using functional brain imaging techniques to investigate the very same diseases. There's now just so much specialized knowledge that we're almost completely siloed off from each other. <laughs> right. I mean, that's it. Just seems tremendously complex. I mean, it just makes you think of. It makes me think of. The, the, you know, try, trying to govern a country these days is just so tremendously complex with how many yeah. issues you have to deal with. And I, you know, j- yeah. just, just the same kind of idea. I mean, it's just, there's the landscape is just so large, you know, right. So, right. Amazing. So if that fMRI investigators out there and listening to this podcast, get a hold of Zachary, because <laughs> I, I would yeah. love to hear what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll, I'll do some, do some Googling, but yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying. It's like, I mean, I, as much as I wanted to learn, I tried to do some research for this interview and it's just so much stuff and I can't, you know, I have, I don't have obviously, uh, you know, enough time to even learn a fraction of, uh, what's out there. Uh, right. Just right. so much stuff. Uh, let's see. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the, um, the uh, psychodynamic uh, therapy work you've done. What what was the gist Mm -hmm. of of that work? So we were interested there in functional brain imaging and psychodynamic psychotherapy. So, So to back up a bit, psychodynamic psychotherapy 
is an outgrowth of psychoanalytic approaches. So that's what we would call sort of depth psychology. So this is the the theory of mind that posits that we not only have a conscious mind, but also an unconscious mind. And we have, uh, there are, there are aspects of our mind that are obviously unconscious. So for instance, I know that I see, I open my mind and I see, or I open my eyes and I see, but I have literally no access to how I see. It simply happens. So there's all this, this unconscious processing going on and I open my eyes and there's just a picture of the world and I couldn't tell you how or why that happens. Hmm. So is, is it accurate to say that that's, that's the, the psychodynamic aspect uh, is what Freud and, and his, you know, the people around that time were popularizing that that kind of theory of the mind, is that accurate? Yeah. And uh, well, what makes something psychodynamically interesting is that it's not simply unconscious, but efforts to make it conscious are possible, A, but are B, resisted. And so there's this barrier between the psychodynamic unconscious or the dynamic unconscious for short and conscious awareness that's put up by resistance. So for instance, mm-hmm. uh, Freud gave this great example of uh, of somebody who is writing a, uh, a novel and every time they tried to type the word mother, the word murder would get typed out. <laughs> and so Freud surmised, well, perhaps you have some kind of murderous wish toward your mother. Oh, no, no, Dr. Freud. No, no, no. <laughs> You're right. I love her very much. Yeah, yeah I love uh, her very much. Yeah. Uh, so would, would that be, is, is also the idea there with that, with those psychodynamic theories of mind is, is the idea that, uh, clearing up, uh, making conscious the the associations, the subconscious thoughts is is part of the process of healing. That's part of the the idea of doing the therapy is making those things conscious. Is that accurate? right? So, to the degree possible, bringing these forbidden uh, or feared unconscious desires, wishes, fantasies into conscious mind for examination and reprocessing. And essentially, uh, just integration, taking the power out of them, right? And so <laughs> Freud was a wonderfully kind of wry and melancholy figure. And he thought that the goal of, he had pretty humble goals for psychoanalysis. He said he just, just wanted to replace um, neurotic misery with ordinary unhappiness. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's a, that's, that is a noble goal and, and sounds doesn't sound too uh, idealistic. <laughs> no, no. Uh, and interestingly, in, in uh, Freud, his background was neurology. And in the 1890s, he published some interesting work on aphasia. Um, particularly, he was interested in the neuroanatomy of aphasia, um, which was a really hot topic because... Um, it had been discovered that small strokes in particular areas of the brain had been discovered by uh, two uh, prior scientists, Broca and Wernicke, that um, strokes in particular, uh, one particular area of the brain led to the ability to speak, but a complete loss of the ability to comprehend. A stroke in another part of the brain led to perfect understanding of speech, but a complete loss of the ability to speak. And so this was fascinating to Freud. And Freud was also wondering uh, about really 
uh, a neuroscience of psychological phenomenon. And he embarked around 1895 on the project for a scientific psychology. And he had this really interesting theory, a kind of a hydraulic theory, where uh, this kind of mental fluid is kind of hydraulically pushed through different parts of the brain. Um, and he pretty quickly realized that uh, we're just not close at all uh, in our understanding of neuroscience. And so... Mm-hmm. That's when he switched to he dialed that back. a metaphorical approach, and uh-huh. that's when he began to develop his theory of mind, his his kind of geographic model and his topographic model, basically consisting of the conscious, the pre-conscious, the unconscious, and then the superego, the ego, and the id, and their interactions are what lead to mental life. And, and then and it is kind of life. a. Uh, hmm? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say it is kind of a uh, it is kind of a hydraulic uh, metaphorically hydraulic in the sense like you push something down you repress something and it pops up somewhere yeah. else and you have other yeah. symptoms that yeah. yeah 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 and he thought initially that it would be really difficult to try and understand the unconscious of a patient but he realized that you know I think he said the unconscious it leaks out everywhere in 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 murmurs and facial expressions and mm-hmm. twitches mm-hmm. and wringing of the hands oh i um, thought his 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 psychopathology of everyday life is one of the things that inspired me to you know be be interested in behavior and and get into poker tells you know i read that as a kid and uh really influenced me i, I just thought it was a great perceptive book you know it's fascinating stuff it's absolutely fascinating the guy was um, I mean, he was a bit high on his own supply and I don't just mean the cocaine, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both, both ways. Yeah. He had some, he had some like seriously legitimate and profound insights and even his approach to clinical practice, uh, was really revolutionary. He was the first person that said, okay, like the doors are shut. What you tell me stays with me mm-hmm. and you can say anything you want. And in Victorian Europe, this is an extremely revolutionary idea, right? people are so are so buttoned up so repressed and to be able to get those things off their chest would be would be huge yeah and so when he would start an analysis there were basically only um it was really only one rule uh well two rules say whatever comes to your mind and don't censor yourself and inevitably somebody would start talking and uh, within about 30 to 45 seconds, they'd stop, right? <laughs> so, okay, the resistance is here <laughs> and we're off. Um, and he developed or he tried to develop sort of passive techniques to overcome the resistance. Psychodynamic approaches to kind of circle back is the, is, uh, is the involvement of more direct confrontation with resistance to try and get at the, the unconscious gold, um, and, and lead to, to healing. And we were interested in the question of, all right, well, who's been doing research in this area? It turns out there's a real hotbed of it, of pet research in psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory in Finland, of all places, in the 90s. This was a real hot topic. Somebody, I guess, just must have got a massive grant back <laughs> in the day. Um, and we brought together a group looking at, all right, let's look at pet, let's look at spec, Let's look at fMRI because we had an fMRI researcher who was also uh, in training uh, as a clinical psychologist and was interested in psychodynamic psychotherapy. And so we spent about a year and a half gathering all the data and found, you know, the 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 findings are are, are kind of interesting. That um, 
individuals in uh, states of psychiatric distress, whether that's discrete psychiatric disorders like a mood disorder or say a personality disorder, uh, they have differences from say normal population brain studies. And over a course of psychodynamic therapy, as an individual improves clinically, their brains tend to come to resemble the brain scans from a normal population. Wow. That's great. Yeah. So that this, this, this would have been, I think, uh, it would, this is kind of one of these days where you, or where you sort of wish that Freud was alive yeah. and you could sort of take him into the, into the control room of the scanner and say, look, look. Right, right. No, that's amazing. <laughs> in, in 1890, you know, you, you were just, you were a century too early with your oh, idea. Yeah, he'd, he'd be, he'd be smiling down. Yeah. Yeah. We're directly visualizing it well, now. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And it's amazing to me. I mean, you would think, you know, you would think therapists would be, uh, maybe they're more classy than that, but you think they'd be uh, plastering that all over their, their advertisements at this point. You know, it's like, that's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, I think though, if we sort of, there was, there was this period where when we started to first study brain function, um, there, 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 there kind of got the, to be this, this sort of profligate tendency to, to, to talk about the brain change of anything. And there would be, you know, articles like learning a second language changes your brain, <laughs> right. um, smelling a flower changes your brain. And I think the thing we came to realize is, well, you know, your brain is the thing that processes the world and it's constantly changing. It is the organ whose job is to adapt to the world and adaptation is change. Mm -hmm. So everything is changing your brain mm -hmm. constantly. And um, I think finally we're kind of moving away from that sort of golly, wow, every, you know, the, look, this changes your brain right. um, to, to more of like, okay, well, what's changing and how, and how do we put together the, the deeper hypothesis about fundamental brain uh, function? And that's kind of really the really interesting stuff from the last 10 years, getting into brain uh, network theory, which that, that, that's probably taken us Again, we're we're heading off the path. Oh, I don't mind. It's it's all interesting to me. I, I kind of treat this as just things I'm interested in, so I I definitely don't mind. Okay. <laughs> oh, very uh, good. Yeah, very yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one way to constrain the scope of the podcast is just just things I'm interested in. <laughs> well, it constrains it in a very lovely way too. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. yeah. You know, it, it, people listening is the is a bonus. <laughs> uh, but the 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 way to um to kind of wrap that back around is. Um, the reason that I think therapists aren't talking of, and th there was a period where therapists would talk about brain changes of this and that, but fundamentally people aren't going to therapists to change their brains. They're going to feel better or to perform better or behave better. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. They're like, look, I don't care my brain, this, that, whatever. <laughs> I just hate being depressed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just fix me. Do you think the, uh, you know, when it comes to trying to measure and, and, uh, interpret the the brains of people with uh, psychological emotional problems mm -hmm. it, it seems like one of the major obstacles is the prescription of drugs because you know that that really throws a wrench in the works and trying to determine you know what's what's changed over time like has therapy yeah. changed people or has the drug prescription et cetera et cetera um, do you do you have any thoughts on that has that come up in your in your work that problem? Hasn't come up specifically in my research, but definitely 
uh, a very active field of research is the neurobiological impact of medication. So, you know, believe it or not, uh, it wasn't really only until the mid to, I want to say the mid 60s that Arvid Carlson to the to the shock of everyone around the world discovered that there's dopamine in the brain. <laughs> and these days we're like, well, duh, right? But there was a time when that wasn't known. Um, and so the first question is, well, why is there is, is there dopamine in the brain? Or in the 1950s, why is this medication that we're giving to treat patients with tuberculosis making them all so happy? Mm. And um pharmacology or neuropharmacology has kind of been this interesting side development side-by-side uh, side with pro- progress in psychotherapy, progress in fundamental understanding of the brain. And to me, uh, what's interesting is that um, the way that psychotherapy changes the brain is different from the way that medication changes the brain. But what's interesting clinically is the outcome is the same. And maybe the analogy there goes back to traumatic brain injury versus post-traumatic stress disorder. TBI can lead to high level behavioral changes that are very similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, even though neurobiologically, the picture is very different. And so what I take from that is that the brain on the whole is constantly dynamically generating our internal picture of the world to ourselves mm-hmm. and generating our behavior in a way where the sound that the orchestra makes is similar enough that even though these two orchestras have quite different composition instrumentally, the, the sum of the sound made by the two orchestras can be uh, difficult to, to tease apart. So the brain works with what it has to generate what it can. When you did that work for uh, the Finland uh, work, that, that was just reviewing a lot of studies. Is that, was that correct? That was, yeah, that's right. That was a, uh, a literature review, which, which we were surprised hadn't been done before. Um, so that was nice. It was nice. It's nice to be able to kind of look at a field of disparate studies uh, across different modalities and find, in a sense, that a lot of these studies are seeing with one eye, even though they're, they're from communities that typically aren't talking together. And that's one thing I really like about review work is it's the opportunity for that interdisciplinary interface to happen. So maybe at some point, in, perhaps in my years of leisure, should they ever occur, I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at the PTSD versus TBI question uh, from a broad review framework again, but also fold in the PET literature and fold in the fMRI literature. Mm. Yeah, but oh yeah, my God, the spec review nearly killed me. So <laughs> sounds like a, yeah, I was gonna say it sounds like a life life's work. You know, yeah, just like, keeping uh, up. Yeah, just yeah. keeping up. Mm. So many, so many areas. I mean, uh, yeah. What what about uh, would it be possible, uh, currently possible, or, or possible in the future for a say an insurance company wanted to get a brain scan of someone to find out if they were malingering or something? Is that is that feasible, or is there some ethical problem with that? Well, that kind of comes back to the orchestra issue. Um, malingering, typically, uh, that's sort of the conscious production of symptoms, usually to achieve some sort of gain, uh, often a financial gain, or to escape an obligation like work or school. Mom, my tummy hurts. Um, 
And of course, it's of interest to the courts, right? And wouldn't it be great if we could find, aha, here's the brain region for malingering. But what we're discovering is that because behavior is the end product of the interactions of multiple networks, and that networks themselves have compensatory strategies, and meta-networks have compensatory strategies, um, to the point where, say, if you're 10 years old and you have refractory seizures, neurosurgeons can take out half your brain, and you will essentially grow up normally um, with maybe very subtle uh, asymmetric clumsiness that a skilled clinician would be able to detect. But it's, it's rare, but it definitely happens that in really severe refractory seizures, they can't localize them. They'll remove up to half your brain. And this has to be done prior to a certain age. So that person who presents and lives a completely normal life will have an absolutely abnormal brain scan, <laughs> right? Um, right? So the idea of brain scanning to detect a phenomenon as complex as malingering, because you have to think about that, right? This this involved conscious intention, uh, conscious fakery. Well, I was I was thinking more about like the lack of a uh, the lack of a traumatic brain injury, for example, uh, right? Proving the lack of it, but maybe you're talking about that too. Well, um, certainly, you know, our scans can exclude traumatic brain injury, mm, but mm. they can't exclude somebody who has become, uh, has a strong psychological reaction to the fact that they've had a head injury and they're suddenly, right, not, right. they're not able to, yeah, it's a gray area. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're having a struggle confronting the fact that, oh, wow, uh, I'm not immortal. Uh, I'm vulnerable and the world is scary and dangerous and I shouldn't get out of bed, right? Um, a lot of people might go, oh, well, ever since he had that traumatic brain injury, he just hasn't been able to get out of bed. Well, maybe, uh, but there could be a lot of reasons for that, right? right. And this is Psychological, what makes psychiatry- existential. Yeah. 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 And this is what right. makes psychiatry an endlessly fascinating subject. Right. Yeah. I mean, in short, the brain is is so complex that we would be unlikely to uh, figure out all the reasons why someone's behaving a certain way to, to narrow it down that exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And this is why, you know, companies that, that advertise that they can detect, uh, lies in, in brain scans, just, just really grind my gears. Cause that is just, right. you're, horse, you're, that's you're, horseshit. Yeah. You're, you're, you're skeptical about a lot of that. And, and that's yeah. one of the, I wanted to have someone on, you know, um, what was his name now? Uh, Dr. Marcel just who had done, you know, he had done that work on the, um, you know, recognizing like the pattern using fMRI to, to recognize the pattern for certain words or, or phrases in the brain. And I want to have him on and he said he'd be on later. So I'll talk to him about that. But yeah, you, you, I know you had been, um, you had talked about, you know, being skeptical about some of that work and, and, and not his work necessarily, but just, you know, scans in, in general, because you thought uh, there were, there was a lot of like overstating of the, uh, what was possible. Uh, well, yeah. What it often ends up happening is somebody say, well, we'll do some kind of work and they'll be able to kind of uh, produce some findings in a discrete domain. But then uh, what ends up happening is other individuals may seize upon that and want to rush to commercial applications, right? Mm. Um, so, and this is a constant threat in science, uh, is, is, is the rush to commercialization. I mean, who doesn't want 
to land the big patent, right? right. Easy um, answers. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the problem is it's very, very easy in this field to get way out over your skis. And, uh, you know, we're not skiing down this mountain. We're actually just falling and tumbling down this mountain. <laughs> uh, we don't have a clue what we're talking about, but um, we can easily kind of misrepresent our uh, our findings. So... Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it's uh, it's a uh, it's it's not that's not unique to brain science. Although there is a there seems to be a razzle dazzle factor when it comes to brain scientists, where uh, people might be uniquely susceptible to the claims of brain science. And this this is this is an interesting bit of uh, psychological literature. If you if you take a, a psychological paper and you add color images of brains to it. Uh, it's generally more believed and <laughs> is generally thought to be more scientific and more accurate. Absolutely Interesting. Well, the, yeah. that, the, they've actually studied that you're saying? Yes. Oh, yes. wow. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Uh, and uh, uh, we who work in brain science are no exception, right? So uh, I, you know, when I'm flipping through a journal up, I'll linger over a really nice looking brain. Image <laughs> the, the, the caption of the, Oh, I wonder what this is all. Well, so, it's, it's, it's definitely, uh, yeah, it's definitely sexy. It's kind of like makes you think of, uh, you know, rocket scientists and brain surgeons. It's like, we just, we just automatically are, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's sexy and very complicated lines of work. And, uh, maybe you're right. We just automatically defer to anybody, <laughs> anything having to do with, uh, brains or, or, uh, rocket science. Maybe that's why we uh, respect Elon Musk so much, even though he gets a little weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy, he's even kind of got a uh, brain stimulation thing going on, doesn't he? Or he's trying to get it off the ground. We don't hear. Oh, really? About no, it. I don't, I haven't heard about yeah, that. Yeah. 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 He's got a, I no. think he's trying to launch a neural stimulation company. I don't know. Oh much man. About. I wouldn't want him messing around in my brain. I'll, I'll tell you that. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I want the skull to stay closed unless there's like a compelling surgical indication to go in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting about the, uh, the brain images. That's a good, that's a good tip for, uh, you know, con artists out there to, um, you know, if they want to promote their, their faux science quackery. Yeah. Well, you're from Oregon, right? Yeah. So, you know, don't put a bird on it, put a brain on it. Yeah, and you, and your we should mention your Twitter uh, profile has a it's got a big colorful three D brain three yeah, brain. brain yeah you're using that to to your benefit you know so it's a good a good example yeah yeah <laughs> you know, exactly yeah the good guys Although I hope can, I'm the, using my powers for yeah that's what I'm saying the, good but, yeah the good yeah. guys can use it too you can you can use that power for good. Uh, yeah. yeah, although obviously I'll have to leave that ultimate judgment to others, whether this <laughs> right. is in fact what's happening. Right, a future study. <laughs> um, right. So if you had to say what your your main, uh, if there's been a main driver for your work, your main interests and, and life's uh, you know goals in your profession, uh, what has guided you in, in that area? I think I am somebody who is interested in emergent phenomenon. So well, what the heck does that mean? Well, that's like the idea that um, somehow wind on water makes waves. There's nothing intrinsic about water that causes waves to arise. It's just something that emerges when you get enough water together that, that, that waves arise. There's, 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 but there's nothing in, in, in the physics or chemistry of, of water that specifically 
would predict a wave. Waves are consistent with water, but they have to be accounted for on their own terms. And wave equations uh, don't have to take into account uh, anything about water. Mm-hmm. So kind I'm a, interested. Kind of a sum is greater than its parts kind of gestalt theory. Yeah, kind of or thing. the sum, at least uh, it, to our ability, um, somehow can't be easily reduced. Mm. Um, can't, can't be predicted. We have, you know, there, 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 so there are cases where we have great reduction. So one of the great triumphs of the 19th century thermodynamics was the absolute reduction of temperature to the average kinetic energy of atoms or molecules, right? So temperature is a phenomenon that reduces, but there are uh, emergent phenomena that don't reduce. And one of the things that, of course, is of great interest in, in neuroscience is all right, consciousness. What aspects of consciousness reduce and what aspects don't? And uh, I think that's a really kind of, that gives us a scientific way of approaching consciousness, sort of like um, the, the approach that, say, Christoph Koch is taking that allows us, you know, I think philosophy helps can help us constrain the nature of mind, at least it can help us to stay away from conceptual confusions and then uh, careful neuroscience that's conceptually guided can say, okay, what parts can we reduce and what parts can't we reduce? And so that we don't, um, I think, keep getting stuck again and again and again in philosophical conversations about the nature of mind that don't sort of help us advance the conversation in a way that starts to solve problems. So one of the things that interests me in, uh, initially, I think, was this, the power, the reductive power of science, but then uh, perhaps, you know, later on the, the, the phenomenon of emergence or, or, or irreducible features mm. of science. And we're kind of at this point now where I think network theory has been uh, a massive breakthrough that's going to allow for a lot of really useful reduction in, in terms of mind. Uh, and we're going to, I think, m- mine that shaft out. Ha ha. And then we'll see what we're left with in terms of the new problem or the remaining problems of mind and consciousness uh, in the next 5, 10, 20 years. And what is and network what- theory? So... Um, Back in the mid 2000s, when a lot of fMRI work was going on, they'd have, say, you know, college students, because there's an endless supply of college students and they all need extra credit. And if they volunteered to participate, or at least at that point, if they volunteered to participate in research studies, they get extra credits. And there were all sorts of uh, hypotheses, and it was the early days, the Wild West of fMRI. And for any given experiment, there are going to be times when you're sitting there in the tube and there's nothing for you to do. You're not looking at pictures of horses. You're not doing mental arithmetic. You're just sitting there vegging or lying there vegging. And what some neuroscientists noticed was that, hey, you know, whenever these college kids are just vegging in the tube, their brain sort of reverts to this default state. And... Somebody uh, around 2005, I might have that number wrong, published a paper about the default mode 
network of the brain. And they recognized that there seems to be activation in these particular areas that seems to happen when the brain is not being tasked. So that in itself, eventually people realized, hey, that in itself, that's really interesting and an important finding. And so that was, uh, and they found that, hey, this, this happens in lots of people. It happens across studies. And now it's a fairly well-characterized phenomenon. And it's, it's called the default mode network or the DMN. And on top of that, um, scientists began to notice that, hey, if uh, when we present a novel stimulus in these experimental conditions, there's this brief activation of these areas that seem to switch on to assess the salience of a novel stimulus. And that became known as the salience network. And so the salience network seems to be something that kind of wakes you up out of that, that default mode state and orients, so orients your attention from an, uh, self-reflection uh, into either a relevant internal condition, like say hunger, or an external condition, like, oh, I guess the, the research is starting again. I see a horse on the TV screen. And then the third network that got identified was what's called now the central executive network, which is the, okay, what am I going to do about this network in a sense? So the default mode network is the one when you are, um, it's kind of the autobiographical network. It's the daydreaming network. Uh, it's thinking about yourself. It could be planning about, you know, planning for the future, reminiscing about the past, but it's sort of inwardly oriented, self-oriented and not, bound or directed towards any particular stimulus, either internally or externally. Salience network lets you know, oh, there's, there's, there's something in the environment that requires your attention. So it suppresses activity of the default mode network. And then the central executive network is switched on. Okay. What are we going to do about this? Right. Do Some, we need to some, do anything something about is this? required? Yeah. Something yeah. Be required. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And um, in 2011, the first paper came out looking at in fMRI conditions, the interaction of these three networks. And now like all kinds of networks have been identified now. Hmm. These were sort of the, the, the first three in the paradigmatic cases. Oh, wow. Uh, looking at network behavior in individuals with psychiatric disorders. And they found that individuals with depression tend to have an inability to deactivate the default mode network. For instance, individuals with psychotic disorders have difficulty with deactivation of the salience network and difficulty with activation of the central executive network. And that was the first publication nine years ago now of a, a network model of psychopathology. And that's kind of, yeah, so this is where neurophysiology and neuroscience is kind of going uh, these days. I, in terms of being a sort of a psychiatrist on the ground, it doesn't really change what you do, right? I'm, if you're coming in depressed, I'm not going to ask you about your default mode network. I'm going to ask you about your sleep and your appetite and your ability to concentrate and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but looking at it now, we're sort of and to sort of swing back to that Freud project for a scientific psychology conversation, we're now actually starting to create the building blocks 
to finish Freud's initial project, we're able to start to look at, all right, we can potentially start to conceive of psychiatric disorders as abnormalities of brain network functions. And what's really interesting is these days, just about everybody has a much, you know, has an intuitive grasp of what a network is. Anyone who's ever been on the internet gets the idea that my internet comes into my house from an internet service provider who's somewhere downtown and those internet service providers have big fat pipes that talk to other computers. And when I want to do a Google search, you know, the data goes out through all these hubs and ends up somewhere in California and some computer somewhere generates a result and boof, it pops up on my screen. Um, so we have this intuitive understanding of networks and the, the, fan the fascinating realization is this is going on in the brain and the brain is organized in networks and there are certain mathematical and computational techniques that can be applied specifically to networks that have now allowed us to make enormous headway into understanding at a much deeper level how the brain works. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a fascinating time to be on the sidelines of that and to have, you know, some kind of tiny role in, you know, over in my corner um, doing my work. But it's this, this, this massive global effort now to really understand um, normal and abnormal um, behavior and, 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 and psychological function but from this kind of neuroscience perspective that's somewhere in between, it's like a layer in between neurobiology and um, kind of manifest behavior at an individual level. Mm. Do, do they do any, are they able to do anything right now where say somebody came in off the streets to a, you know, admit, admitted to a mental hospital and they don't know anything about what's wrong with them and it can be hard to diagnose are they able to do anything now where they would do a brain scan and try to figure out something like that? Or is that far in the future? That's pretty far in the future. I mean, the reasons we would do a brain scan now would be, um, all right. You know, if, if, if somebody's coming in and they're comatose, Oh, have they had a stroke? So it, it tends to be sort of, sort of very, uh, pretty straightforward, uh, reasons why anybody might get a scan, whether or not network theory existed, but we're nowhere close to being able to do that. There are, um, there is some pet work looking at individuals in what are called locked in states or vegetative states showing brain activation in areas, um, that previously were not suspected, but that's a bit different from sort of a discrete, uh, network theory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. This has been awesome. I, I wanted to ask you before we left about your, uh, your table hockey uh, skills. <laughs> you're, you're supposed to be pretty skilled at that, right? Is that what you, you said on your, your, your bio? <laughs> skilled? No, no, no. I, oh. <laughs> I mean, I have a Guinness World Record for the longest table hockey match, oh. but I am dreadfully unskilled. All I'm skilled at is standing there. <laughs> Just stamina? At, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did a 30-hour uh, table hockey marathon, and uh, I lost my match by exactly 900 points. Um, so I, go, I scored 336 against 1,236. The guy I was playing against, um, in fact, ended up not finishing his undergraduate degree on time because he spent so much time at the pub playing table hockey. So he was a hustler. 
I was just the guy that had to be there putting up with his bullshit for 30 hours. <laughs> that's that's funny. 30 hours is a, is a long time. Um, it's a while. Yeah, yeah. And uh, under the Guinness rules, you get a five minute break for every 60 minutes of time you've completed in the event. And, you know, that ain't much time. <laughs> uh, and, and you play uh, you play some poker, too. Is that? Isn't that accurate? I do. Yeah, yeah I'm actually a uh, a big solve for why student. Um, okay. Okay. So and that's how I we. I think that's play- how we got in. We 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 met each other on on Twitter through poker. I think. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. 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 And um, of course, now that there's no live poker, I'm I'm back to kind of grinding online tournaments in stars. It's like I'm <laughs> partying like it's 2000. Oh, right. You're, you're uh, in Canada. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah, we can't play. On yeah, I can do that. Yeah, you can do uh, that. And yeah. I don't have to kind of get involved in these <laughs> sketchy schemes where <laughs> yeah. you convert money to Bitcoin and put it in a wallet and then you don't you sometimes don't get to see what the river card was <laughs> like, yeah or somebody no. run, runs a somebody runs a private game and they'll pay you out later or something yeah yeah, all yeah, all yeah. Of strange, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy to be playing on a site where there's a fairly reliable and stable <laughs> regulatory environment <laughs> right right i'm actually going to play on poker stars play money site later with some later this week with some friends i haven't done that before but apparently they have a a good system where you can set up a private game and invite anybody you want. And then you could just play on there. And, um, you yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the scam is they sell you play money, which is absolutely insane. But <laughs> yeah. Though I think the, the, you can get, you, you get, you apparently get like 15,000 and play money every four hours. You only have to pay if it's above that or something like that, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so it's not as so. bad as it sounded at first. Yeah. Just don't play nosebleeds. Play money. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. You want you if you're gonna play play money, you know, make it smaller stakes. Play money. You might as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, especially if they charge you for the play money. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, this has been uh, this has been very interesting and, and uh, fan- fantastic stuff. And thanks for your uh, research into these interesting areas and and doing your part to uh, advance the the science of this stuff. It's all very helpful to uh, humanity. It seems so. Man, I sure hope so. (laughs) One day we'll find out, right? All right. This is, oh, I should say this has been uh, Dr. Rob Tarswell. Is there any way you'd prefer people to contact you? Uh, Get a hold of me on Twitter, Rob underscore Tarswell. Great. All right. Thanks a lot, Rob. All right. Bye. You bet. Bye bye.